Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. It'll be our last week in Ephesians 1. Uh, it's been a few months in Ephesians 1, so we'll look at uh, verses 15 through 23 again. Um, the same text is printed in the bulletin for you. So, um, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the oldest creed in the Christian church. It's found in the New Testament in a few spots. Uh, it's one of the first things that all Christians um, could actually agree on. It's the common ground. Uh, short enough sentence that we could probably all say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, Jesus is Lord. Of course, it's a very controversial statement for various reasons, whether you're making that statement in the context of ancient Israel or ancient the, the Roman Empire or even in the church in recent decades, Jesus is Lord. That's a controversial statement. People instinctively reject uh, the notion, or resist at least, the notion of Jesus' lordship, uh, assuming that it's, um, it's like a threat to their person. Right? It's a threat to uh, undermine their values or their security or their way of life. Right? The fact that Jesus is Lord is a threat to me. In fact, uh, too often the church has used the concept of Jesus' lordship for that very purpose, as a threat, actually, to, uh, to brandish it like a weapon, to cow people into submission, to frighten them into compliance. You've probably heard this, um, not just Christians talking to non-Christians, Christians talking to each other. Uh, we do this with Jesus' lordship. You've heard somebody say, Jesus is Lord, and he's probably angry and disappointed and so you better straighten up your lives before he comes back, before you meet him. Because what's he going to say when he comes back and sees this, right, this mess? Jesus is Lord. You better watch out. Right? Um, so the proclamation of his lordship is not usually well received. And I'm just going to say that that's partially the fault of the proclaimers who cast him as though he's uh, usually looking down on us with displeasure does not mean, Jesus is Lord, does not mean he's frowning upon you. <laughs> um, but that's the way we put it so often. Rather, his lordship is, is actually a statement of the gospel. It's good news that Jesus is Lord. It's meant to bring us good cheer and resolve. So everywhere in the Bible, uh, the rule of Jesus Christ is seen to be the solution to everything that's wrong in the world. It's the source of the restoration of all things. It's the pinnacle of humanity and the pattern of humanity and the purpose and the, the promise of true humanity uh, is what we see in the lordship of Christ. So people who know what they're talking about when they say Jesus is Lord will say it with relief in their hearts. They'll say it with comfort and joy in their hearts. They'll say it to encourage others not to burden them or spiritually oppress them right, or frighten them. That's, that's what you'll say and how you'll say it when you understand what it means Jesus is Lord. So the, the phrase itself, Jesus is Lord, doesn't appear in our passage, but that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about Christ's universal reign for our good. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, let me pray. Father, we pray that you would allay our fears about your Son about your intentions toward us. We pray that you would assure us of your goodwill toward us, 
And the good news that it is that we're not Lord of our own lives or of our own worlds, but that you and your son, you rule over all things for our sake. We pray that you would convince us of the goodness of it, that you would help us to be encouraged by it, and that our lives would be changed by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, if you back all the way up to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, which we've spent some time in earlier this year, you see that God made humanity in his image, actually for the purpose of sharing his own dominion, his own rule, his own place over the rest of creation, over all of creation, to share God's dominion. It's the point uh, of our existence. It's the purpose for which God made us, to sit with him in an eternal Sabbath rest, that seventh day being a picture of God's God's own sitting and being pleased and and, uh, enjoying and ruling over everything that he has made, enjoying the, the relationship with creation that he's supposed to enjoy. And we were, we were invited to join him in that, to, uh, to sit with him in his rest and rule, to be, as it were, high kings and queens of the cosmos at his side. But then, in Genesis 3... Um, we, we sold our birthright. We sold our birthright for a piece of food, right? for a piece of fruit. And uh, the devil, who we understand is an angel, a powerful created being, a fallen angel, the devil sought power over the world. He sought the power of death. Um, and he sought it in our sin. If he could get us to sin, if he could tempt us to sin, then he would rule us with the power of death, right? And so, um, so entered into the world relational disintegration. That was, that was the devil's goal, right? To pull us away from God, to separate us and alienate us, move us toward disunity and divorce, right? Um, so the devil looks to tear us apart from God, from his purposes for our life, He doesn't want us to sit as high kings and queens over the cosmos at God's right hand, um, and he wants to tear us apart from God and from each other. Usually, we're happy to cooperate with him. Usually, his plan for disunity is okay with us. 
um, beginning with Adam and Eve taking his side in enmity with God, right? In the fight against God, we became subjects in the devil's domain. We became slaves to sin, and we became oppressed by death. But God promised from the very beginning, somewhat of a recap of that whole series uh, from Genesis, God promised from the very beginning to deliver humanity from that dominion, to deliver humanity from the power of the devil, from, from the power of death. And he would do so through a human king who would crush the devil and his power underfoot. So throughout the Old Testament, you see the power of the devil at work in humanity. You see fights and wars and hatred, disunity, separation, alienation. Um, You see the, the power of the devil at work throughout the Old Testament. You see our great need for a true king to come and deliver us from that power. Great need that we have uh, for a king to come and deliver God's people. And you see little glimpses of what that king, what his power will be like. Little glimpses of it in kings like David, um, kings like Josiah. But those kings, great as they were, they couldn't fix the problem. So he kept getting more and more promises about this Messiah, this king, this true king, the Christ, who would come and as uh, as was promised in 2 Samuel 7, he would rule from David's throne forever. He would have an everlasting rule. Or Daniel 7, to him God would give an everlasting dominion and glory and a kingdom that includes all peoples and nations and languages. Or in Psalm 110, which is actually, I think, maybe the most frequently quoted verse in the New Testament uh, from the Old Testament, The Lord, God, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God said to the Lord, um, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this, this Lord, this Lord of Lords, would be an Israelite. He'd be from the house of David, the line of David, um, the lineage of David. His rule would not be limited to Israel, his rule would extend over all the earth, and his power would be the power of defeating death itself and defeating the devil himself. The true enemies of God and his people would be made his footstool. His power would be great enough to bring true and everlasting peace. He'll rule forever, the Bible says, and Uh, His power would be great enough to bring even reconciliation between God and his enemies, which are us, sinful, rebellious people, right? He would be able to bring true reconciliation, real unity, where the devil's goal had been disunity, real unity between those whose natural state is enmity because of our sin. And almost uh, every sermon recorded in the book of Acts says that this promised Lord, the one with this power to do all this, is Jesus. Almost every sermon talks about his lordship. He's the one. He's the promised Christ, the promised king, the coming king, the one who would be able to deliver us from the power of death itself. The Gospels record, uh, you've got the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They record his life and his ministry. They tell us what kind of person he was, what kind of person he is. 
They tell us about Jesus' authority, his authority over demons, the ability to cast them out with a word, his authoritative wisdom and teaching that made people marvel. Who is it that teaches with such wisdom and authority? His authority to forgive sins, to do what only God can do and forgive sins and restore people whose relationship with God is broken, to restore them and fix that relationship and make it good again. He's got the authority to do that, the Gospels say. He's got a miraculous ability to fix what's broken in the world in every way, every imaginable way. What's broken, he can fix it. You see his miraculous power, his power even to conquer death with a word, just a single word, raising dead people to life again. He's got this power, and he's got the willingness to lay down his life for the sake of his people, like a good king. When he suffered and died on the cross, uh, as if he deserved it. As if he deserved it, in our place. In place of people who do deserve it, even though he didn't. He was willing to lay down his life for his people like a good king. And the Gospels all record not just his life and his death, but his bodily resurrection. On the third day, after his crucifixion, God raising him from the dead to live forever, like all the old promises said. He is the king who will live and rule forever. And after he told his people that God had given him all authority in heaven and on earth, then he went into heaven. He ascended into heaven where Paul says in our passage, and it's, it's frequently stated again in all those sermons and acts and throughout the New Testament, he is seated at God's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion forever, by which uh, when Paul is just heaping up those words there, all rule, authority, power, and dominion, uh, Paul means that Jesus, as a human, on behalf of his human people, as their king, he's been exalted far above all angels and demons and heavenly powers. Not just earthly powers, any imaginable power, any created being, any angel, any demon, Jesus has been exalted far above all of those uh, forever. And none of this is mere human opinion. None of this is mere speculation. All of it is historical fact. It's historical fact. It's reality. Nobody's ever been able to offer a substantial argument against the historical reality of who Jesus is. And the events of his life is recorded in the Gospels. His life, his death, and his resurrection. Nobody has ever offered a substantial argument against the reality of it. It is true. Jesus is Lord. Um, Karl Barth says in a quote that I think is provided on the front cover of the bulletin for you from his uh, little book, Dogmatics in Outline. He's quoting from the Apostles' Creed, which is quoting from our passage and, and others in the New Testament. He sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. The summit has been reached. The perfect tenses lie behind us and we enter the realm of the present. He sits on the right hand of God the Father. This is present. That is what we have to say of our time. That is the first and the last thing that matters for our existence in time. 
At its basis lies this existence of Jesus Christ, his sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So whatever prosperity or defeat may occur in our space, whatever may become and pass away, there is one constant, one thing that remains and continues this sitting of his at the right hand of God the Father. There is no historical turning point which approaches this. Here we have the mystery of what we term world history, church history, history of civilization. Here we have the thing that underlies everything. This is what humanity was made for, to be where Jesus is right now, sitting at God's right hand. And all of this is in the Gospels, right? Gospel means good news, Because Jesus is good, and his coming into the world was for our good, and the news of his rule, his being Lord, his lordship, is good news. It's good news because from the beginning we've been under the devil's power. Separation has characterized us, separation from God and from one another, alienation and hate and enmity. That's characterized us because we're under the devil's power. We've been complicit in our own self-destruction in that. We've been willing slaves to sin. We've been on the run from God's rule. We've been avoiding his kingdom. And our greatest need has been for his king to come and win us back, to wrestle us away from the devil and from his power, and to reunite us to God as citizens of heaven, citizens of his kingdom, as people uh, who are now characterized by real, real eternal life and love. That's what we need. And that's what we have. The gospel says that this has already happened. Jesus is Lord. His heel rests on the devil's head as on a footstool. His heel rests on the devil's head. Verse 22 of our passage is quoting Psalm 8, which Brian read in the Old Testament reading and um, is a favorite among uh, Christians in the early church and throughout, um, throughout the history of the church. Psalm 8 says, God put all things under his feet. And Hebrews chapter 2 is quoting Psalm 8. It says that the rule of humanity, the rule of humanity, the place for which humanity was created, the rule as high kings and queens over the cosmos at God's right, right hand at his side, the rule of humanity over the cosmos has been inaugurated in the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven. Not visibly and universally, right? uh, as it will be one day when the king returns and he grants us to sit, actually physically in resurrected bodies, to sit with him and rule with him as high kings and queens. But it's happened really, even though not visibly, it's happened really and decisively and corporately for us in Christ, vicariously for us in our representative. Right? Jesus rules over all things for our sake on our behalf, as our representative. And it says in verses 22 and 23 of our passage, God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus, he's not just head of the church, which he is, and and Paul uh, acknowledges that here in other places, but Jesus is the new head of the cosmos. He's the new head of the heavens and the earth, right? He's the second Adam. He's the true human 
who did what the first Adam could not do. He took our humanity into glory. He took our humanity into God's very presence, to the very throne, and he achieved for us the Sabbath rest and the Sabbath rule for which we were made. And it says that he fills all in all. He fills all in all. That is to say, I think, all things find their meaning in him. All things find their purpose in relationship to him. His power upholds all things. And he imbues all things with glory in relationship to him. The universe was made for him. And he enjoys the position that humanity was made for even now. The universe is subject to him. Which means that as we are in him, the universe was made for us. We are his fullness, the passage says. We are his body. And I think this is language that gets at the profound spiritual union that we have with him, the fact that we in the church are, familiar biblical language, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. That we are, um, as Paul will say later in Ephesians 5, we're his bride. We're the new Eve to his new Adam. We're his body. Um, Robert Lethem has a great quote in his book, The uh, Union with Christ. He says that the union we enjoy with Christ is more real and more fundamental than the union we have with members of our own bodies. In the words of Nicholas Cabasilos, who is a 14th century uh, Byzantine theologian, says, union with Christ is closer than any other union which man can possibly imagine and does not lend itself to any exact comparisons. So Lethem ends his quote of this other guy here and continues, and he says, this is why Scripture does not confine itself to one illustration, but provides a wide range of examples. A house and its occupants. So the, the union the church has with Christ is uh, pictured with a, a wide range of illustrations, like a house and its occupants, or wedlock, or limbs and the head. Indeed, it is not possible to form an accurate picture, even if we take all these metaphors together. For example, the limbs of Christ are joined more firmly to him than to their own bodies. For the martyrs laid down their heads and limbs with exaltation and could not be separated from Christ even so far as to be out of earshot of his voice. In short, this union is closer than what joins a man to himself. The union that you have with Jesus Christ, when he says, you are my body, you are my bride, we, are, we have this one flesh spiritual union that all the pictures of union in the scriptures, all those relational pictures point to, that, that union is closer than your own union to your body. You will lose this body. You will never lose your union with the one who is Lord, with the one who sits at God's right hand. So being part of his body is more significant than you having your body. Because you're a part of the body of the King of Kings, you have an absolute foundation for true eternal security and, and real joy. You have a real foundation for that in your union with him. Because just as Jesus, the Son of God, is one with his Father, he says, I and the Father are one. 
and, and so shares in the spirit and the power and the glory with his father. He's not the same as his father. They're distinct persons, but they are so one that they share the same spirit and power and divine glory. Just as that is the case, he says, you are one with me. We are one with him so that whatever is his by right, he shares with us by grace. Whatever is his by right, he shares with us through our union with him by his grace. So uh, what does all of this mean for us? It means that Jesus' lordship should never generate fear among his people. It's never used that way in the New Testament to generate fear among his people. His lordship should not be... It, it should be our great consolation. It should erase all of our fears about this life and about the next. Because his lordship is not only in this life but also in the next. It should enable us, his lordship, to, to face this world with real confidence. We can face this world. He has all authority in this world, all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's an authority for us. He is for us. I know several Christians who think that um, sharing the gospel means getting people really anxious about things, getting people really anxious about the state of our country, right? uh, getting people really worried that we're, we're bringing Armageddon on ourselves, getting people really concerned that that frown that Jesus has, that we all know he's looking down on us from his throne frowning, that that's going to turn into a scowl. That's, that's what it means to share the gospel for a lot of Christians. Um, the lordship of Christ and the fact that we are his body, that we share a union with him that's closer than our own union with our own bodies, that truth, that gospel, means that proclaiming the gospel is not fear-mongering. It can't be fear-mongering. Right? It's dancing as we celebrate the freedom that we have from the devil's power from death. It's, it's laughing at the pro broken power of death. It's delighting to offer the greatest, truest hope to meet the, the deepest need that everyone is dying to hear. Reconciliation to God. Ruling at his side as high kings and queens forever over all things that he's made. The lordship of Christ and the fact that we're his body means that we can find rest, real rest for our souls, real Sabbath rest for our hearts in his session in heaven. Session is the old Latin word for time when people are sitting, right? Uh, he sits, having accomplished the gospel for us, he sits and he rests, and in his rest, we find our rest, right? He is already Lord. There's no need to worry about that anymore, right? You are not the Lord of your life. You are not the Lord of your world, he is. He is. So if you're, if you're freaking out, if you're worried, you're anxious, you're stressed all the time, it means that really what, what you need is to control everything and to control everybody, right? To be the Lord of your little world, to achieve your vision for your perfect world. And um, we all know that that's impossible. That's not what we were made for, Right? Uh, we were made for him to be Lord. You cannot control all the circumstances, 
all the relationships in your life. You can't do it. You can't control the direction of our nation. He does. He already does. He is already Lord. And you know that he is Lord for your good as his people because we're close to him, because we're his own flesh and blood, because we're his body. We're his fullness, he says. So you can, uh, you can lay down those pressures that come from trying to be Lord of your own world because he's already a good Lord for you. He is. It says in Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, you've just heaped up expectations on yourselves and, and burdens and the stresses and pressures of trying to be Lord for yourself, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can't fix everything around you. You can't fix everyone around you. You can't fix your neighbors or your friends or your family or your children. You can't manage all their lives. And while that means that things won't always be exactly as you imagine they should be, you know, if they were going to be pleasant for you, according to your own vision, while that, things won't always be pleasant for you, you can still know that the good Lord has all authority that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, so you can be at peace. You can really be content in whatever situation you find yourself, like Paul says in another place. The lordship of Christ also means that you should listen to his words. You should listen to him. You should read the Gospels. You should read the proclamation of the good news about him. His proclamation about himself, the good news about himself. You should read that to discover what kind of king he really is. You should read the Gospels to find out what his power really looks like, what his authority really looks like, how he is the serving king, the self-sacrificial king, the king of resurrection. You should listen to him. He's always going to surprise you, and ultimately that surprise will always be good for you. It may not feel like it at first, but he is a good king. The lordship of Christ means that you should obey him that you should imitate him and emulate him in areas where you have authority, right? All of us are in positions of authority in some relationship or another, position of influence and power, right? We should exercise the kind of power that our Lord exercises, the way that he does it, right? So you can lead in your families or you can lead at work or you can lead in the church with humility, with self-forgetful service where you esteem others as better than yourself, right? like Jesus did. You can lead with true vulnerability even if that vulnerability and that relationship is not reciprocated by the people that you're leading. Um, you, can, you can lead with true love even if it's met with resistance or hostility or persecution or betrayal. The Lordship of Christ and the fact that we, uh, the church, are his body, it means giving priority to our life together as the church. It means giving priority to the church, to our participation in it. And um, so the church, the community of the people of God, reunited, we're reunited, we really are because of our Lord. That community of, of, of this people reunited to God is the result of God's promises to fix what is broken in the world. We broke this world, we followed the devil's lead, God, through his true king, 
fixes it, and this is what it looks like, the church. The church is God's, uh, it's the result of his promises to fix what's broken in the world. When you're under the devil's power, you're on a trajectory away from things like the church, away from real relationship and uh, a relationship with God. But the goal of Jesus' lordship from the beginning, his power above all powers, is the power for, for establishing true reconciliation, true peace, true love, true communion, in the church first. That's where we see it in this age. His kingdom is a reality that we can enjoy, and it's a reality that we can live into together. And that's the good news, because Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it's hard for us to um, even spit out the word submit, that we would submit to a Lord, to a king to a God who rules over all things, including our, our very lives. Would you make it a beautiful thing to us, Jesus' lordship? Would you convince us that it is for our good? It's not what we would expect, and it's not what we as sinners, as rebellious people, as people who are looking for autonomy from you, uh, as people who are like the devil in pulling away from true relationship with you, it's not what we would want or plan out this lordship, but it is good for us nonetheless, and it is restoring all things in the universe to the way that they're supposed to be. And one day, we look forward to the fact that all things will be made right, that our bodies and our souls and our hearts and minds and all of our relationships will be made right forever and will be fully and finally free from the power of the devil and death itself. We pray that you would encourage our hearts now as we know that Jesus sits at your right hand and he's got a footstool and it includes the devil and his power himself. Jesus rules over all things for the sake of his church. And we want to find our hope in that and our courage in that and our, our joy in that. And we pray that you would help us to believe, that you would help our unbelief, that you would help us to truly submit with happiness to you together so that we can experience uh, all the benefits of what it means to have our lives reordered in light of the gospel in service to the true king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.